Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, listeners. Hello, Sarah. Good evening. I say this to you because it's evening now, but then I just realized that people could be listening to this at any time of day and saying good evening might seem a little bit strange. The likelihood is actually that they're not listening to it in the evening. That's okay. All right. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, it's evening for us. And once again, I ran into the house and am not yet derobed. I'm like sitting in my comfortable clothes. So who knows how, I mean, my uncomfortable clothes. So who knows how this podcast is going to go. So this time though, I'm in my pajamas because I had a little bit more time to prepare for the podcast than you and pajamas is my favorite way to record. This is uh, listeners why this is not a video podcast. (laughs) Truth. So, uh, so I don't also know. because I cannot awkwardly look into your eyes for an hour. <laughs> you have um, uh, eye contact challenges. I don't think it's it just, gotten better, but yeah. I, I think it just gives you the – well, for, it gives you the awkwards and then it gives you the giggles. But I, I think – I mean it's not like you don't make eye contact when you have conversation. Like you, we just made that sound like you like can't look anyone in the eye. That's not true. No. It's just something about the recording – like there's just something about this particular medium that it feels strange. And maybe if we'd get used to it because we've been doing this as an audio podcast for uh, over six years, which is a fairly lengthy amount of time to do the same thing every single week. In Uh, podcast years, that's like 4,000. Right. Uh, I, I've been uh, been seeing this like trend now towards like the release of podcast series. So it's like a finite twelve part series or a twenty part series, right? It's like whatever, but it's it's like and here here's the whole podcast. It's just these twelve episodes, and uh, every once in a while that looks like a really 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 cool <laughs> idea. <laughs> yes, I I too am listening to one like that, and I like the idea that it's finite, but also. When I don't get to make progress on it, it's very like, oh, I'm going to miss out. Um, So anyway, I, speaking of podcast listeners, needed to tell you, I met a listener in Stanton, Virginia. I really wanted to pronounce that Stanton, but I didn't. You're welcome, Stanton. Um, So this is the town that's next to Polyface Farms that I have talked about previously on the mm-hmm. podcast. Polyface Farms, of course, Joel Salatin's farm that pioneered and influenced so many farms, especially in Virginia, but even nationwide, to grow humane, sustainable methods. Um, 
And so we found this town years and years ago because it's the closest next to his farm and you can go and get lunch or something after you visit the farm. And most of the restaurants in town actually serve polyface meat and are really focused on local, sustainable food, like slow slow food movement. And because we were big fans of the town, we heard when they did their first year of the wizarding world taking over the town. And they can't, of course, call it Harry Potter Fest because that's trademarked. Um, But they call it Queen City Mischief and Magic. And we went for our third year this weekend. And I was coming out of the grass-fed organic gelato shop that makes their ice cream with, you know, local milk and uh, we're serving like organic cane sugar uh, butterbeer floats like does anything sound any better in the world um, and also ironic for the title of this show but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving right along um, a listener approached me and she said that she'd heard about the fest on the podcast before and that she binges our shows and of course I apologized and she laughed and she said I knew you were gonna say that and um so we just chatted for a minute and I met her family and they're so nice and lovely and I just wanted to say thank you listener and she said that she was inspired to go because she'd heard me talk about it on the podcast before and knew that she couldn't not go and she was so glad that she did and had a great time so just want to encourage all of you listeners come on out next year. We go every year. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And um, it's nice to to meet listeners in the wild like that. Um, so I, I had this like realization while you were sharing that story of, the, you know how sometimes we like have this little like chit chat update on our lives before we like get into the meat of the show and get into the topic. And uh, I would say more than periodically, I would say relatively frequently, we're a little bit coy as we like do our little transition to the topic, not necessarily intentionally. That's just the way we roll. And then I realized that everybody's listening and it's not a surprise to anybody because they saw <laughs> the title of the episode in their like podcast feed before they hit play. And so every single time, probably like a hundred times out of the 320 episodes we've done thus far, We've been like, oh, we, and we haven't spoiled so, anybody. Yeah, surprise, we're, we're, we're surprise, spoiling the topic, or the we, we've got this guest today. And meanwhile, every single person ever listening was like not surprised because they saw the title of the episode before they hit play. I just had that realization just now, and it's a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> I that's okay. I'm I'm aware, but I'm also okay with the fact that it's like this taboo but not actually thing that we're doing and I think it's part of part of our <laughs> dorky charm. I mean, I'm not saying I have the capacity to change this particular aspect of the podcast. I'm just saying I realized how silly it is. But no, of course we'll like keep going and I'm probably like, you know, now that I've realized it, it's like, oh yeah, now I got to do this every time. <laughs> it's got to be a shtick now. It's always a shtick. So uh, speaking of uh, sugary beverages, is that what you were saying? I believe that was what I was saying. Absolutely. (laughs) 
So we actually, it was supposed to be last week's podcast, but then because of the great recording debacle of 2018, it actually um, aired two weeks ago, and then we had to re-record last week's, uh, right after my camping trip, which was what we were trying to avoid by pre-recording that one. Um, I feel like you're making it sound even more tangled than it was right now. (laughs) But... Uh, In that episode two weeks ago, we had promised to get around to the topic of diabetes because that was an aspect of that particular question of sort of transitioning to paleo was also the idea, sort of the extra complication of managing diabetes while trying to transition to paleo. And we actually have multiple questions in our queue related to diabetes. I have one here uh, to drive sort of the conversation uh, for this podcast, but it felt like that aspect of the question really had to be its own topic because diabetes is a it's, it's, it's kind of a big thing. It's kind of a big deal. And it um, in some ways does change how we approach paleo and in some ways it doesn't, which we'll get into. But that's that is the topic for, for today is is really this idea of that all encompassing, right? So paleo to prevent diabetes, paleo to manage diabetes, uh, potentially reversing diabetes, uh, and what we can do to get the most out of our choices uh, to best improve our health if diabetes is a, is a challenge or a high risk factor for us. I know that it's actually one of the reasons a good friend of ours, when we started paleo, had a son who was type one diabetic. And that's how she discovered paleo and through monitoring A1C and all that kind of stuff was able to see um, some results, though the claim that it can be reversed is different for, you know, type one versus type Mm -hmm. two and all that kind of stuff, which I'm sure you're going to discuss a little bit. So maybe um, we can just jump into the question. And then I know you've got a lot of science to cover, right? do it's a it's a it's a big show note week guys get excited push those glasses up the bridge of your nose every week's a big show note week these (laughs) days this this has been an ongoing ongoing thing of me creating far more notes than is reasonable to uh, discuss in a regular podcast (laughs) um so this week's question is from i'm gonna so i don't know if it could be either, either pronounced kayla or kyla do you have a guess i would have gone with kyla would have gone with Kyla. Okay. Uh, uh, no, right? I think you're right. I think it's I Kyla. I have met, but yeah, I have, uh, there was a Kyla in my school, uh, in my high school who, who spelled her name this way. But I also know of a Kayla who spells her name this way, which is why I'm like, oh, it's, it could be either or. So flip the a coin. Things, the things they have to listen to us debate over. You know what? I'm just going to mix it up and sometimes say Kayla and sometimes say <laughs> Kyla. And that way I'll be right like half of the time. Uh, so Kyla writes, hi, Stacy and Sarah. I loved your recent recap podcast. I'm writing because I haven't seen a podcast yet about diabetes and paleo or AIP. I did listen to the insulin one, but I'm specifically wondering how AIP or paleo could be helpful to a diabetic. I had gestational diabetes with all four of my pregnancies, progressively worsening with each one until my last, which was very hard to control. Unsurprisingly, I'm now struggling with high blood sugar, even though my baby was born nine months ago. I have seen that diabetes is an autoimmune condition, but I really don't understand the mechanics, so it's hard for me to be motivated to stick to the AIP diet. Would you be able to discuss that more on your podcast, and can Sarah please geek out on my behalf? Thanks so much for your amazing work. 
Kayla. Why, yes. Yes, she can geek out. <laughs> That's my favorite thing to do. It's her specialty. Uh, so I actually felt like the place to start answering this questions was a little bit of sort of general diabetes statistics and then also differentiating between type 1 and type 2 diabetes because the the differentiation really drives how to sort of best dial in diet in order to manage diabetes. So the scary statistics uh, is that diabetes is uh, a chronic health condition that is basically increasing exponentially. So it it's ha literally has quadrupled, more than quadrupled, the incidence of diabetes in the world over the last 40-ish years. So that is just an amazing increase in incidence. And now in America, there's an estimated 29 million people, which is approximately, it's almost 10% of the population. Um, it's like 9% 9, 9 of the population have, um, have diabetes. And if you actually include insulin resistance or prediabetes, there's an additional 87 million Americans out there with prediabetes. So those are people who are at incredibly high risk of developing type 2 diabetes over the next 5 to 10 years. Now, in those stats, type 2 diabetes accounts for approximately 95% of the people with diabetes, and the other 5% is type 1 diabetes. The difference being uh, type 1 diabetes is caused by an autoimmune condition. So this used to be called juvenile diabetes, and type 2 used to be called adult-onset diabetes. But those lines have gotten very blurry, so it is possible to develop type 1 diabetes later in life. And now we're seeing this sort of relatively recent thing, like only the last 20 years, we've started to see uh, pediatric and sort of teen cases of type 2 diabetes. So that those kinds of labels have sort of fallen to the wayside. But type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition where the body's immune system is attacking uh, the beta cells, which are the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. And then um, as those cells die, the pancreas is, is able to make less and less insulin until all of the cells are dead and the pancreas can make no insulin. Um, and that's why type 1 uh, diabetes before the discovery of, of insulin and um, the ability to inject insulin after meals was actually a uh, lethal autoimmune disease. So even just 100 years ago, type 1 diabetes was a death sentence. Um, but now it is something that is basically managed with a, either an insulin pump or insulin injections uh, after every single meal in order to uh, be able to handle the, the sugar in, in a meal and, and regulate blood sugar levels. Type 2 diabetes is um, a condition that is a direct result of diet and lifestyle. There's definitely some genetic factors that go into this. There's other risk factors, um, like you have a higher risk factor if you're smoking. I would wrap that under lifestyle, but you have a higher risk factor if you're vitamin D deficient, for example. I kind of put that under both diet and lifestyle, although it's, vitamin D is obviously more complicated than that. But in insulin-resistant diabetes or type 2 diabetes, what's basically happening is that the pancreas can still make insulin, um, but the body is less responsive to it. And so this is basically considered the uh, consequence of um, eating a lot of sugar, although it's definitely more complicated than that, uh, and having 
to make insulin, more and more insulin to shuttle the, the sugar into cells. And then because insulin's inflammatory and high blood sugar is inflammatory, the cells basically start making less resist, uh, less receptors to insulin or um, the receptors, even when insulin binds to the receptor, you don't get the same signaling inside the cell. So you're making insulin, you're actually making more and more and more insulin and your body's not responding to the insulin. And so when blood sugar levels can no longer be managed, then you get the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So this is also called insulin resistance um, or loss of insulin sensitivity. So all of those things sort of fall under type 2 diabetes. And I, I don't want to oversimplify and just say like you get type 2 diabetes if you eat a ton of sugar. There's a lot of other factors involved, which we're going to get into in this a particular episode. So for example, uh, having inflammation will make you insulin resistance and that inflammation can come from a variety of sources. Uh, stress contributes to insulin resistance. Uh, being sedentary contributes to insulin resistance. Uh, not getting enough sleep is one of is a major uh, contributor to insulin resistance. Certain nutrient deficiencies can contribute. So, and then there's some genetics that can make us predisposed. Being overweight uh, is a is a risk factor. Um, so, I, I I don't want to sort of oversimplify it as eat a lot of sugar and get diabetes because it's a very complex condition and it doesn't have a sort of simple linear uh, pathogenesis. But the difference between type 1 and type 2 is type 1 is an autoimmune condition. It is driven by the immune system attacking the specific cells that make insulin in the pancreas, whereas type 2 is considered a diet and lifestyle disease. And it, in this case, the body is making insulin and it's just not responding to the insulin. So that the... I really want to focus more on type 2 diabetes, but let's take a second here to just say type 1 diabetes as an autoimmune condition, the uh, recommendation would be to follow an autoimmune protocol with paying attention to all of the other things that we're going to be talking about in this podcast. But because it is immune system driven, regulating the immune system is top priority in terms of being able to uh, preserve what capability uh, someone might have of producing insulin, potentially um, restoring some capability. So there are um, there are anecdotal stories of people out there who have followed paleo or autoimmune protocol and been able to recover enough uh, insulin production to be able to get off of insulin with type 1 diabetes. There has not been a clinical study yet looking at type 1 diabetes and paleo or the autoimmune protocol. There have been some looking at type 2 diabetes and paleo. With the autoimmune protocol, there's some interest, but uh, the next priority in terms of clinical studies is actually looking at hypothyroidism due to Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So that is the study that's recruiting right now. But in Kyla's case, uh, Kyla is really talking about type 2 diabetes. That is uh, typically what adult onset diabetes is, gestational diabetes, which I had in my first pregnancy. So I, I really have a, a, a huge amount of um, compassion for what Kayla is going through. See what I did there with the Kyla Kayla? I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> um, but I, I had gestational diabetes. I'm familiar with how awful it is and the the risk factors. And I, you know, I did develop preeclampsia when I went into labor. And of course, if you have gestational diabetes, you have a higher risk of preeclampsia. It's, it's just a, a snowball of not good things. Um, and one of the things that gestational diabetes does is it increases risk of developing type 2 diabetes. 
And it was actually the, the beginning of my health journey was the discovery that I had borderline type 2 diabetes uh, when my oldest daughter was one. So I, I have a huge amount of of uh, sympathy and compassion for what Kyla is going through. So because this is really type 2 diabetes, and I think that we've talked on this podcast a lot about autoimmune disease, I feel like type 1 diabetes as an autoimmune disease has been covered under that umbrella. I really want to hone in on things that can help in terms of regulating and managing type 2 diabetes. With the sort of add on that if you have type one diabetes, all of these are still important on top of the autoimmune protocol. So the traditional recommendation from the American Diabetes Association for regulating insulin is almost good. It is uh, a, the right idea. So their, their dietary guidelines basically boil down to measured carbohydrate. And if you look through all of the websites, they typically won't actually give you a formula. You have to work with a dietitian to get the formula. I did work with a dietitian when I had gestational diabetes. Um, and the formula basically boiled down to like one to two servings of carbohydrate for every one serving of protein and one serving of carbohydrates. So, uh, and you'd basically never eat more than three servings of carbohydrates at a meal, but that you would test your own blood sugar and you would fiddle around. So you would figure out what your body, how many carbohydrates you could actually manage at a particular meal. And you would recognize that breakfast was likely going to be different than lunch was likely going to be different than dinner. And you might have more or less sensitivity at different times of day. So a serving of carbohydrates being 15 grams of carbohydrates. So most of my meals while I had gestational diabetes would be between 30 and 45 grams of carbohydrates with protein and with fat. And if you actually sort of go through the the most up-to-date guidelines, like it, it's it's interesting because there are some some interesting new review papers that have sort of you know are looking at updating the guidelines. There's a, a heavy focus on fiber, which I think is awesome. So uh, using high fiber foods to help uh, regulate the, the blood sugar response, which it does. Um, it translates in the ADA recommendations to a very, very strong focus on whole grains, even though they also say low and moderate glycemic load foods, which whole grains are not. Whole grains are a high glycemic load food. Um, so there's, there's a few like pieces where it I don't think the logic actually makes sense. Um, they look at legumes. They recommend legumes as a slowly digested carbohydrate. That's also a great source of lean protein, which it's not a great source of lean protein. It's it's not very digestible protein. Um, and then they also recommend, right, like as an afterthought, also eat the fresh fruits and vegetables in your meals every day. Um, they also recommend low fat generally. So they uh, I think rightly, you know, recommend eliminating trans fats, which are getting easier to to eliminate since they're being phased out of foods. Um, they limit or recommend limiting uh, saturated fats and using um, polyunsaturated oils. So they they recommend using vegetable oils. Uh, so mostly polyunsaturated, monounsaturated. So olive oil, canola oil, <laughs> safflower oil, and they recommend things like all that uh, good stuff that does right, really great. all that great stuff. And uh, flax oil, right? So they recommend flax seeds for omega-3s. 
So, and then, and then the recommendations don't actually say anything about protein uh, other than eat some. And they basically say three meals a day, you know, balanced three squares and monitor blood sugars. So I, I like the aspect of the recommendations that is self-experimentation. I think that's really important. Monitor your blood sugars, look for patterns, look for foods that always make your blood sugar high and eliminate those foods that's probably caused by an inflammatory response. Um, I think that it's there's some aspects of this that are on the money, right? So uh, measured carbohydrates, carbohydrates with protein, fat, and fiber. So having your carbohydrates as part of a meal. And even when you're e eating a snack, think about whole food carbohydrates with fat and protein and fiber. I used to have almonds as a snack. That was my go-to snack when I had gestational diabetes because it always regulated my blood sugar really, really well. Um, so I think those concepts are really, really great. Uh, obviously, we're going to look more at omega-3 fats. We're not going to be terrified of saturated fats, uh, but we're definitely not going for vegetable oils. And uh, we're not we're going to avoid grains as an inflammatory food because uh, inflammation causes insulin resistance. So there's a lot of ways in which I think the ADA guidelines fall short. And you can see that in this growing collection of scientific studies that actually pit paleo against the ADA and look at blood sugar regulation, which to me is like the super cool thing because what they do in these studies is they'll put half of the people on a paleo diet, eat as much as you want. And this is like Lauren Cordain circa 2001 paleo. So it's lean meat, fish, fruit, vegetables, root vegetables, eggs, nuts, and seeds. Um, and then they'll, they'll pit them against uh, either the American Diabetes Association diet or a Mediterranean diet. Both of these have been studied. And uh, what's cool is paleo outperforms these other dietary strategies for managing diabetes in uh, all of these studies. I mean, the, the original studies go back to the 90s, but the, the really sort of well-performed ones are kind of from the last like 10, 12 years. And there's um, a really amazing difference. So uh, there was a 2007 study. Uh, study done where they looked at um, basically how much um, they did a glucose challenge test and they measure a thing called the area under the curve. So they actually plot your glucose over time after a glucose challenge and then they measure the area as a as a really sort of detailed measurement of insulin sensitivity because it's measuring how quickly your body can shuttle the glucose out of your blood after consuming a very measured amount. After 12 weeks on paleo, those people had a 26% decrease in their glucose area under the curve. So that meant that they were more insulin sensitive. And this was uh, pitted against the Mediterranean dial. They, they only saw a 7% decrease. So paleo far outperformed Mediterranean and then there was a, a collection of studies done just a few years ago. There was a study done in 2005 that pitted paleo against the American Diabetes Association. And again, it was sort of sim similar sort of lean meat, seafood, fruit, vegetables, nuts. Um, this particular one was a, a low-sodium paleo diet um, with also pitted against a low-sodium American Diabetes Association diet. 
And they actually saw that the paleo diet had better improvements in glucose control and lipid profiles. So they also looked at blood cholesterol and showed better improvements there. And what was super cool about this particular study was it was the first one to show that the paleo group actually had an increase in insulin sensitivity. So it actually partially reversed the diabetes, whereas the American Diabetes Association did not. So you're actually seeing not just better glucose management, but you're actually seeing a restoration of insulin sensitivity, which is fascinating. And there have been a couple of other more recent studies, a couple from 2016, again, pitting paleo against ADA and showing not just better um, sort of blood sugar regulation, but all of the hormones that sort of go along with that, glucagon, incretins, ghrelin, uh, adipokines, uh, which are um, inflammatory uh, mediators from fat cells. Um, they just basically showed that all of those variables were improved in the paleo diet uh, far more than the American Diabetes Association diet. And some of those, the American Diabetes Association diet didn't even touch. Um, and uh, what they've also shown is that it um, also can help um, people, it can also help people restore insulin sensitivity independent of whether or not they're exercising. So there was a great study that actually took people on a paleo diet and either had them exercise or not exercise and showed that it, uh, it was obviously better with exercise, but it still had a huge increase or a huge improvement, um, in insulin sensitivity. So we've got some really great scientific studies showing just paleo out of the box, can improve um, diabetes management and um, and potentially begin the reversal. I mean, none of these studies have gone over a couple of months, so or three months, I guess, is the longest. So we don't have studies looking at specifically diabetes um, over a longer term than that. There are longer-term paleo studies, just not in diabetes. But it's it's really compelling to pit diabetes the diabetes diet against paleo and see that paleo without measuring carbohydrates, this is just purely because it's whole food carbohydrates, it's nutrient dense, it's um, going to be very satiating, it's cutting out all the junk and it's an anti-inflammatory diet. All of those things together are going to help improve insulin sensitivity and blood sugar regulation. So that's really, really exciting research. Um, I think it's also really important to emphasize that diet is only one factor here and that actually insulin resistance might be even more tied to lifestyle than to diet. So um, as much as we can sort of play around with carbohydrates and nutrients and um, address nutrient deficiencies and all of these things that are really important, lifestyle may actually be even more important. So, uh, and that really falls under activity, stress management, and sleep. Like those, those three things are really, really important for, for insulin sensitivity. So starting with activity, the way that activity improves insulin sensitivity is through a direct action on the receptors for glucose that are insulin sensitive. So it actually is increasing the sensitivity of those receptors and the number of those receptors in muscle cells. And so what we see happen is 
being sedentary just by itself causes insulin resistance. And there's this collection of studies. These I don't know who volunteers for these studies because they sound terrible to me. But there's this series of studies that were performed either in healthy adults, uh, in overweight or and obese adults, and there's actually been some that have been performed in athletes, where they um, impose a typically a three, but up to like a five day, uh, what's considered called a short period of inactivity, which means bed rest. So um, this is, you know, you, you might have this happen in your real life if you had an injury or an illness. But in these clinical trials, people are basically volunteering to spend five straight days in bed. I volunteer as tribute. Do, do you really? I think I would go crazy. <laughs> I, no, I, go think, crazy. I, think, I think I actually would go crazy. But the idea of just like... Like no. a marathon, Harry Potter marathon? Right. I was thinking Netflix, but... Yeah, I mean, because you and I are both such busy, active people. Like we, you know, we just, we do what we got to do. We've got kids, we got jobs, we got life, right? It's like boom, 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 boom. <sighs> the idea of just like, like being forced to lay in bed is like. Check in. Oh. So the thing is, I'd bring my computer and I would just, I would still spend the whole time working. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't Harry Potter marathon it up. Like maybe the last day I'd be like, I'm done all my work. Now I'm going to rest and have fun with Harry Potter. But I, I think I would go stir crazy. Like I think by like 3 p.m. on the first day, I'd be like, I quit. I quit. It's too much. <laughs> I'm not doing it. All right. Well, um, what's the what's what's the end game here? I mean, there's well, got to be a result, right? Yeah. So there is uh, a really compelling study in healthy adults that showed a 67% increase in the amount of insulin that was needed to re to shuttle glucose out of the blood after a glucose challenge following five days of bed rest, which is... So you're saying Netflix binge, not so great. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, and then there have been other studies that have shown the similar, similar effects in... Um, actually, people who are overweight and obese are even more sensitive. So they'll have um, dramatic increases in uh, insulin resistance uh, after shorter periods of inactivity. But we even see this in athletes. And then what's even crazier is that it's like, it's not just insulin resistance. It's also increased blood pressure. It's a high cholesterol. Like it's, it's a, all of the things that are part of like metabolic syndrome. So cardiovascular disease, uh, obesity and, and diabetes. It's sort of like that magic, that magic concoction. That's, that's terrible. And what's like cool is it just takes a two-minute movement break every 20 minutes to completely negate all of these all of these effects. So um, it's not it's not that it has to be like uh, you know working at the treadmill desk all day or going to the gym for three hours. It's just getting up and moving for a couple of minutes every every 20 minutes will negate these effects. But so part of regulating blood sugar. Uh, with whether it's paleo or AIP, whether it's type one or type two diabetes, is this activity piece, which also is really important for immune regulation. So it, it has more than one benefit. And so what this really means is avoiding being sedentary. So this is the idea of gentle movement, um, but then exercise on top of that will improve insulin sensitivity. So it, it's this sort of 
this both pieces of this puzzle of avoiding being sedentary and having these movement breaks throughout the day while also engaging in some kind of more vigorous activity, um, some kind of resistance training, body weight exercises, even walking that can help restore insulin sensitivity. And it's, it's a really big effect. And you'll see, you know, the, the American Diabetes Association recommendations will also recommend exercises as part of what they're saying. The science is really compelling that both avoiding being sedentary and incorporating more moderately intense physical activity are really, really important for uh, insulin sensitivity. One of the things that I'm kind of curious to discuss, and I know you're talking about activity and kind of generalizations, but um, the year that you and I went to shoot California and presented on mm. hormones. Why can't I think of the name of it's the that, conference? An- Ancestral Health Society yes. conference in Berkeley, California. Yes, in thank you. 2014. <laughs> you remember the year? Holy moly. <sighs> I happened to have like just been looking at uh, the, because I did two presentations that year. Yeah. So I was just actually looking at the other presentation like two days ago. So I kind of cheated. I didn't know you were going to reference that, but I'm just saying that. Well, we're all impressed. So the other presentation that I did was specific to um, high weight activity and the specific type of support of hormones that has over, let's say something like running as it relates to um, hormone regulation. And in this case, that would be insulin regulation. Did you find any differentials in the studies for people specific to the type of activity that they would be doing and how that would play into their hormone regulation? Yeah. From an insulin sensitivity standpoint, there doesn't seem to be a big difference, although um, there's a dual effects. So one is sort of the impact on metabolism. Um, and the other one is muscle growth. So having more muscle mass typically makes you more insulin sensitive. So there, you could make an argument from that, that there is definitely a benefit to doing some kind of muscle building activities, uh, with or without doing some more, um, well, I guess if you're doing like what cardio, I, I using air quotes there, right? Metabolism conditioning is that's more technical term. You're going to get benefits in terms of insulin, sensitivity from both. Um, but I do think that incorporating muscle building activity is, is definitely worthwhile because basically, basically boils down to like more muscle allows you to process more sugar like quickly and easily. And also when you have been exercising, your blood sugar can actually get into your muscles independent of insulin and that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why people do like post-workout shakes with a lot of sugar. You're not actually using insulin to get that sugar into your muscles. You're replenishing your glycogen really, really quickly and easily uh, for a fairly short window, 30 minutes to an hour, say after you finish exercising. So it's it's really the both the both that are, are beneficial for long-term blood sugar management. They're both going to have a short-term benefit in terms of your, your insulin sensitivity. But over the long-term both are important and um, doing something that is more like weight training versus doing something that's more like cardio, neither one of those are going to negate 
the damage that is done from sitting at a desk job all day. Um, so it's still, you know, even if you're you're doing, you know, interval training or something where you're incorporating both CrossFit or whatever, uh, it's still important to take those movement breaks during the day. So so all of those things are actually completely relevant from a blood sugar regulation standpoint. Excellent. I also have a very, very vivid memory of Stephanie's calf muscles during that presentation that you're referring to. <laughs> I was, I basically spent the entire presentation going like, oh my gosh, look at that girl's calf muscles. Moving right along. <laughs> Stress is also a really, really big factor determining insulin sensitivity. And this happens actually both with chronic stress and acute stress, which is really, really interesting. And I, I think it really boils down to the fact that uh, if you look at a sort of evolutionarily relevant source of stress, all stressors were acute stress. And during a time of acute stress, it is the uh, stress axis, the fight or flight axis's job is to prioritize functions. So what ends up being prioritized are things like perception and decision making and energy for our muscles, for preparation for wound healing, and what are considered non-essential functions like many aspects of the immune system, digestion, reproduction functions, um, protein synthesis, bone formation, right? Those things are not as important in an immediate life or death scenario for the body. So in this sort of acute stressor, we see a shift in what systems have priority and like digestion and regulating blood sugars is just not a priority. So that extends when we're under chronic stress, right? We're basically magnifying that as opposed to, you know, just, you know, survive the lion's attack and then, and then be on our merry way. Our body doesn't know that the lion ever went away. And so we see that chronic stress uh, which is actually a, a sort of a hard thing to measure. So it's really interesting to see how different studies measure chronic stress. But we see that it is actually, it directly causes insulin resistance uh, via cholesterol. So it's at, or via, sorry, cortisol. So cortisol is actually causing insulin resistance in the context of chronic stress. And there's actually been a, a bunch of researchers who have actually proposed that chronic stress may be the number one contributor to metabolic syndrome. So that, you know, as, as much as, you know, the food supply and all the crazy addictive foods are obviously a contributor, uh, how sedentary we are, how much time we spend indoors, uh, we are, those are obviously contributors as well. But there are, because of the magnitude of the effect, uh, there are some researchers start, are starting to say like, no, no, chronic stress is that's, that's the thing. And it's actually been supported by a bunch of epidemiological studies that link chronic stress with insulin resistance. Um, and also then these various sort of animal studies showing that cortisol just by itself causes insulin resistance. There's also this like secondary effect of stress. So stress is inflammatory. And inflammation disrupts insulin sig signaling. So if you have inflammation, that makes you insulin resistant and being under chronic stress is inflammatory. So it kind of has these, these sort of multiple modalities in which it feeds into the insulin system. What's fascinating is that even acute stress, though, is, causes insulin resistance and a hyperglycemia. And this is probably because 
in a acute survival situation, fight or flight, having more sugar in your blood is actually beneficial because it's readily available energy for running away or making an important decision, um, whatever it is, it's going to help you survive. So there's probably has this like really important evolutionary purpose. Um, unfortunately, the effect is like, you can just be like, wait, no, I have a test now. I, I still have nightmares that I forgot that I have a test right now. I'm sure that's a normal, a normal type of nightmare for people to have. Um, so, Usually I'm clothed though, so I don't know. Maybe it's not that normal. Um, but even even in acute stress, a, a traffic jam or um, you know phone call from a crazy relative that you don't like talking to, even that acute stress can make you insulin resistance. So working on resilience activities, uh, managing stress. So um, doing things like saying no, taking things off your plate, obviously beneficial. The bigger effect is probably resilience activities like nature time, uh, cuddling, um, laughter, uh, things like yoga, meditation, um, all of those things, even like downtime, like, uh, doing a, uh, jigsaw puzzle or reading a book, like all of those things can actually make you so that you don't have as big of a physiological stress response when you're faced with a psychological stressor. So they all make you more resilient to stress. And all of those things are really, really important from a regulating blood sugar perspective. What are some of the ways that you see them measuring stress in these studies you said it's kind of an interesting thing to measure I'm curious so because I feel like I don't even do a very good job of knowing when I'm stressed or not you know what I mean like I I, it's one of those things you can look back on and be like oh yeah like (laughs) that got out of hand (laughs) um yeah. So yeah. So the really good quality studies are measuring cortisol as at least one of their measurements, and and those are the ones that I put a lot of stock into because you actually can see the physiological response. Because some of these are, um, you know, just looking at. Actually, I would say like a lot of them, especially like the long term epidemiological studies, are looking at. Um, basically, they're giving people questionnaires, and then they're they're getting a measurement of stress based on how a person answers those questionnaires. And those are, you know, they're 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 what are called semi-quantitative measurements. So they're getting a number out of, you know, it's like on a scale of one to ten, how upset were you when you were five minutes late for work today, right? Like it's like it's it's sort of questions like that, and. Um, and they can get a fairly good measurement of your chronic stress based on how you answer those questionnaires. Uh, but I always like to see that paired with an actual cortisol measurement because I think that um, when you're under chronic stress, um, how much your cortisol goes up is very individual, right? Because it's, this has a lot to do with, it has, it actually feeds into our genetics. It feeds into our nutrient status. And this is a a really sort of complicated equation because your, even your personality, when you go back to last week's optimism show, being a more you know positive, optimistic person will actually decrease your stress response compared to somebody who's more negative. So all of these things are feeding into like just how much cortisol will go up, how long it'll stay up, and then how long you've been stressed will determine how kind of out of whack your cortisol is on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's one of the reasons why 
this particular field is sort of, and it, not just stress and diabetes, but stress and cardiovascular disease. Like we have the, these indications that stress is a really, really big deal in terms of a chronic disease risk, but it's really, really hard to quantify because it's really, really hard to, to be like, okay, so let me just find out from you. Okay. How much do you work? Do you like your job? Do you like your coworkers? What kind of deadlines do you have? What's your financial situation like? What's your relationship like with your spouse? What's your relationship like with your other family? Do you have kids? You know, like a lot of the research comes more out of, um, these are bigger life events like a death in the family or a divorce that's a little bit easier to sort of say like, yeah, like that's a super stressful event. Wheels are off the cart. We don't really have these ways yet of saying like here's here's all of the things that the check boxes that you have that are all things that add up to stress. And then here's all the things that you do that, that would qualify under management of stress. And here's your score at the end, which would be like a cool thing to be able to do. But we just don't have that. And it's also one of the reasons why adrenal issues are still challenging to diagnose. It's really only a functional medicine specialist who's going to do that. Um, you know, treatment is very individualized. Like it's all of those things are kind of wrapped into the challenges of quantifying chronic stress. Uh, I hadn't occurred to me that cortisol would be a measure. And that makes so much sense because I think that there are even things that aren't super stressful in my life that I might internalize and vice versa. There might be something big that happens that I'm able to say, well, that's okay. Life happens or, you know what I mean? I, I, I think especially for those of us with autoimmune disease and when you're talking about um, diabetes and, and other aspects of that kind of function, we often internalize stress and it affects us in a different way than those without. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So the last lifestyle effect that is like uber important when it comes to blood sugar regulation and insulin sensitivity is sleep. And this is actually one of those like, I don't think people realize how big of a risk factor um, not getting enough sleep is for diabetes. So I will, I will, I will share the crazy statistics. If you get less than six hours per night on a regular basis, like an estimated 40% of Americans, you increase your risk of type two diabetes by 50%. And uh, you increase your risk of either diabetes and or prediabetes by 2.4 times. So just not getting enough sleep is is a much bigger risk factor for diabetes than anything to do with diet or anything else that we can measure. And there's actually been studies that have shown that even a single night of lost sleep will make you insulin resistant. Um, uh, four or five nights, like a regular work week of not getting enough sleep, so getting right four or five hours of sleep Monday through Friday, um, that causes insulin resistance. Um, it, this is even in healthy people, um, and of course, it's it's magnified in people who are already on their way there, who are overweight um, and already have other risk factors for diabetes. Um, and it's it's a pretty big effect. So uh, just going Monday through Friday with not getting enough sleep will increase your um, insulin resistance, will make you insulin resistance about 30% effect, which is pretty amazing. Um, there was actually a really fascinating study that actually showed that even getting 30 minutes less per night, just on weeknights, it did not matter in the study if you 
uh, tried to catch up on your sleep on the weekend. So that's getting seven and a half hours instead of eight on weeknights had a huge impact on insulin sensitivity. So they took patients who were newly diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and they sort of randomized into these groups where they worked on diet and lifestyle. But what they actually did was look at sleep in their um, intake assessments and they all of their assessments had sleep um uh, sleep journals in it, but they didn't actually change sleep in any of these people. And then they did all the statistical analysis and they found that uh, people who didn't get enough sleep uh, when they were recruited were 72% more likely to be obese. And after a year of all of these interventions, uh, they found that for every 30 minutes of weekday sleep debt, that their risk of obesity was 17% higher and their risk of insulin resistance was 39% higher. So that meant like 80% risk of insulin resistance for every hour of weekday sleep debt. And it was fascinating because it was very much like, it doesn't matter what you do Saturday and Sunday. It doesn't matter if you sleep 15 hours a night on the weekends. It was reinforcing. And there's other studies, especially in, um, weight loss studies that really reinforce the importance of consistently getting enough sleep. And this sort of falls under that umbrella. It's fascinating because some of the other topics that we've had about sleep, naps and weekend sleep can really help towards that, you know, sleep debt. And so this makes sense to me though, that in a way like you're your body is not able to regulate itself in general, right? Like right. that's kind of the general categorization of what we're talking about. And if you're not getting a, you know, sleep, that's when it's doing its regulation. And so if you're not doing it regularly, you're just creating more of a problem of it not being able to. So right. yeah, I get it. Look at me. I, I just push my, my little nerd glasses up the bridge. My <laughs> nose there. So, I wanted to finish this discussion with uh, nutrients um, that are particularly important for insulin sensitivity, some of which have been studied as supplements for restoring insulin sensitivity in diabetics. And there's a lot of different nutrients that have at least some preliminary information. I tried to kind of separate those that had like better science and more convincing science behind those that it's like, hmm, that might be interesting, but we need more. And before I get into this list, I want to remind people to always check with a healthcare provider before taking even a supplement. So even if you can just buy it off of the shelf at the drugstore, that doesn't necessarily mean it's safe or that it's right for you. And what's really interesting about a lot of these sort of insulin sensitivity supplements, especially when we get into some of the phytochemicals, is there doesn't seem to be a benefit in layering them. So I would definitely recommend talking with a doctor about like which one to try and then look at blood sugar regulation, look at whether or not it's making a difference, then maybe switch to another one and really try one at a time because there's definitely some potential contraindications. Some of these don't mix with drugs. So that's another one is like check with your doctor. Some of these do not mix with drugs. Um, and uh, also do an analysis. So there's, I, I don't want to get into it because it's, it's a little bit, um, harder, uh, a field, but, and I, and I don't know that it's hundred percent relevant, but there are some supplements that can potentially worsen insulin sensitivity. So another aspect here while you're talking to your doctor is to do a, here's all the things I'm taking sort of inventory 
with your doctor, which I generally recommend doing about once a year at least because I think we have this tendency. I certainly know that I do. Um, find out about something cool and then decide to try it and then don't necessarily bother to mention it to my doctor. And so I try to make it a rule of, you know, when we have these like big sit downs where we go through um, all of the things that he's prescribed and whether or not he wants to make changes so that I bring my list of like, <laughs> and here's, here's the things that a, I've heard about that I think are cool that I'd like to try or that I, <laughs> I have been trying because I, didn't follow my own advice that I just gave. Um, but make sure that, you know, he's got a really great brain for contraindications and interactions. And especially if you're somebody who is racking up the supplements, it's a really, really important thing to keep in mind. So with all of that caveat said, uh, the first and probably the most important or one of the most important nutrients for, um, blood sugar regulation is actually vitamin D. And, um, what it really, what this research really shows is that just having uh, sort of more the functional range of vitamin D rather than the lab range of vitamin D. So the functional range would be about 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter. The lab range, I don't think they consider you low until you're less than like 30. So this is definitely um, sort of the middle of the lab range is the functional range for vitamin D. But getting your levels tested and then most people do need to supplement. It's it's really hard to get your vitamin D levels up with seafood and spending time outside. So supplementing and rechecking at least every three months because you want to make sure that you're supplementing enough to get your vitamin D in range and that you're not over supplementing and overdoing it because high vitamin D can also cause health problems. You definitely don't want to be going over 100 nanograms per milliliter in your serum. So getting vitamin D levels checked and supplementing accordingly, rechecking, keeping a close eye on it, um, and knowing that you, how much supplement you need to get your vitamin D levels into that functional range may change seasonally. If you're a person who spends a lot of time outside in the summer, for example, uh, if you're a person who you know eats, you're changing, you're eating a lot more grass-fed meat or seafood, uh, it can be a bit of a moving target. And the amount of vitamin D that people need to get their levels into that good functional range is highly variable. So some people can get away with 400 IU a day. Some people need 10,000 IU a day. Some people will take 2,000 IU several times a day. So um, it's this is like, again, work with your doctor, get tested, um, agree with your doctor on a starting dose, and then retest to see if you need to move that dose up or down to, to get your vitamin D levels dialed in. So that is incredibly important, actually not just for insulin sensitivity, but for pretty much every system in your body. So that is uh, like a top recommendation across the board for everybody. The next uh, nutrient that's really, really important for blood sugar regulation is zinc. Um, it's really, really important not just for glycemic control, but also for the immune system, um, zinc status is very, very closely tied with blood cholesterol. And there's oh, like tons and tons of studies. They literally range from about 10 milligrams of zinc per day to 660 milligrams of zinc per day, which I don't know where that comes from, but that's like a ridiculously huge amount of zinc to give somebody. And I don't know why the studies use such a huge number. Um, but there was a really great recent meta-analysis that really looked at all of this data pooled. And they basically showed that there were benefits 
uh, that started at about 12 milligrams of zinc a day and up to about 50 milligrams. And above 50 milligrams, they actually started to see some potential downsides. So for example, they found HDL, the good cholesterol, going down above 50 milligrams of zinc a day. So definitely with zinc, I would recommend getting it from food. Uh, shellfish is the best source, but you can also get some from like nuts and seeds. Um, but if you don't think you're getting enough zinc, like you can track your zinc with an app like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer and see where you're at. Um, you know, taking a zinc supplement if you have diabetes, there's some pretty good science behind that. Again, talking with a doctor. Uh, vitamin K2 is also really important for um, blood sugar management. And what's interesting is that how much vitamin K2 you get doesn't just help with blood sugar management, but it actually can potentially, like if you're getting vitamin K2, it can actually reduce your risk of developing diabetes. So they've actually found that for every 10 micrograms of K2 that people get, they have a 7% reduction in their risk of uh, diabetes. And then they've also had um, some studies with supplementation. The supplementation was 30 milligrams a day, and that improved insulin sensitivity in diabetics. So there's some good evidence for K2. Uh, you're getting K2 in foods like uh, grass-fed meat, organ meat, grass-fed dairy products, sort of your best sources of, of K2. Um, chromium is a really, really important mineral for uh, glucose for glucose regulation for insulin sensitivity, and there it seems to be the the studies that have shown really strong effects are giving chromium to people who are starting with really nutrient poor diets. So that's important to keep in mind. It probably means that it's just important to get enough chromium. So this is probably um, much more relevant to people who are starting their health journey. Right, they're, they're going paleo, um, but they have diabetes, and this is one of the, their challenges. Because high chromium intake can actually backfire and increase um, insulin resistance. So it looks like it's just important to sort of get chromium into normal ranges. The adequate intake of chromium is 35 micrograms a day for men and 25 micrograms a day for women. And magnesium. So there's actually um, a growing collection of studies showing that magnesium supplementation can improve glycemic control. Um, but it's this is a little bit hit and miss. So there's also some studies showing no effect. So it's, uh, it's a little bit mixed data at this point. Um, but what's interesting is also that the data might actually be stronger showing that um, adequate intake of magnesium can actually help prevent diabetes. So that might actually be the stronger effect. It might not be as big a deal once you, you have it. So it's the data is a little bit mixed. Um, alpha lipoic acid, um, the, the richest food source is actually organ meat. Um, but this is one that you might look at, talk to a, a doctor about taking in supplement form, uh, has been shown in clinical trials to improve insulin sensitivity in people with type 2 diabetes um, and actually like decrease hemoglobin A1C, which is a sort of long-term measurement of, of blood sugar. Berberine is found in kind of some crazy, some crazy foods that are hard, like you're not going to be able to get unless you happen to live in the right area, like Oregon grape, which grows in the Pacific Northwest wild. Um, but you're not going to really find that in other areas of the world. But berberine actually, which is really interesting to me because I've seen some other studies showing particular benefits is a phytochemical. And there was a, 
a really interesting recent study that actually took um, a type 2 diabetics and they put half of them on metformin, which is right this like gold standard drug for helping people measure or regulate their blood sugar. And they gave the other half of them 500 milligrams two to three times daily for three months of berberine um, and showed that the blood sugar benefits were basically the same. So they at you know at time zero, they didn't have any medications to measure their blood sugar. And then they measured on regular sort of regular intervals over three months and showed consistently like berberine, it would keep going down and then it kind of leveled out and then metformin, it would keep going down and kind of level out and it was basically the same. And then there was another similar study that show, showing that berberine was about as effective as other diabetes drugs. So uh, berberine is really interesting. There is some research showing that there may be a potential for hepatotoxicity over long periods of time. So this is also a really important one to talk with your physician and Berberine can also interact with some prescription medications. So definitely talk with a healthcare provider before taking berberine. But this is one that has a fairly high magnitude effect, which is kind of exciting. And then two more phytochemicals, curcumin, which is, I think, really cool because it's also very anti-inflammatory. That's the active compound in turmeric that we all get very, very excited about. And there does seem to be some evidence showing that it can at least prevent diabetes in people who are at higher risk. So there's there's at least some like cool preliminary studies showing that it may have that effect. Um, and actually, cinnamon has some blood sugar regulating properties. Um, so there was a pretty cool recent study where um, patients ate between one and six grams of cinnamon a day, every day for 40 days. Um, it was ink. It was encapsulated because don't, don't take a spoonful of cinnamon. That's not like just YouTube that one and just enjoy <laughs> people's pain. Don't do that at, in your house. Not so a good life just, choice. No, no. Don't put cinnamon in a spoon and put it in your mouth. Definitely don't do that. It's, um, it's, it's a bad, it's a bad However, scene. cinnamon in your food, mm-hmm. all the things. So good. Yeah. Savory, delicious, sweet, Put it in your tea. I personally get cinnamon steamed into my coffee at coffee shops. Like they'll just put straight cinnamon into, like if you get an Americano or an almond milk latte or something like that. Sounds I'll, delicious. It's amazing. And it's a nice flavor boost without a bunch of junk. So, well, did you know I do. that it can reduce your cholesterol by about 18% and reduce your blood sugar levels by 24%? I feel like I'm on an infomercial for cinnamon right now. No, I did not know that, but I did know that it has anti inflammatory properties. Mm. Yes. So, that's why I try to add it as much as possible. Um, and I think it's because we have this like constant battle between whether uh, I think it's pronounced casea versus Ceylon cinnamon are actually better. And from a blood sugar regulating standpoint, they're both good. So if you're if you're a cinnamon snob, you can stick with whatever kind of cinnamon you think is best. Rest assured, just eat the cinnamon. Right. Just all all the cinnamon. <laughs> so and that translates to about uh, like three teaspoons of cinnamon a day for like the high dose people. So that's like a totally that's a tablespoon. That's a totally but just don't not all at once in your mouth. <laughs> 
And I know that somebody, one of our listeners is going to be like, why? And then just go do it. No, our listeners are smarter than that. Okay, that's good. They're, they're, it's going to be like their brother who listened to the show and like heard about that. I'm like, <laughs> I can do it. It's, it's a bad scene. It, it, it has actually put people in the hospital. It's not, it's not a good oh, idea. Oh, goodness. Okay. So, um, okay. And the last one is conjugated linoleic acid, which we actually talked about on the podcast not that long ago. But uh, CLA, again, food source, not supplements. So this doesn't seem to work with supplements. So conjugated linoleic acid you're getting from grass-fed meat and dairy from ruminants. So it's only like cows and lamb, uh, buffalo. You're not getting conjugated linoleic acid from pork or, or poultry. But um, it does seem to have some, and potentially through its anti-inflammatory effects, but it does seem to significantly lower risk of diabetes. So that's pretty exciting research as well. And then I just made a list of everything in which there's like preliminary data, but the data uh, just isn't, it's not quite like there, but it, there's some like pretty cool stuff. Like it might be cool. And it's certainly all of these have other um, either just general, you know, the general nutrients and they've got other health beneficial properties or they're really cool phytochemicals that have other potential benefits depending on your particular health situation. So all of these go on the list to um, talk with a, a healthcare provider about. Um, but I, I kind of had to go to like, okay, I can't go into detail on all of these. Where am I going to cut it off? So this is where I cut it off. So here's here's the list of other sort of supplementy type things that I discovered are good for blood sugar regulation, but for which the data is still fairly preliminary. So it's either been shown in humans, um, but small studies, or it's been shown in animals, right? So not quite the same body of evidence. Coenzyme Q10, aloe, ashwagandha, ginkgo, green coffee bean extract, glucosamine, black cohosh. That gets a superstar behind it because you there's a couple of these that are definitely not recommended during pregnancy. Black cohosh is one of them. Berberine, by the way, is also not recommended during pregnancy. Uh, rhodiola, reishi mushroom, tart cherry juice, white mulberry, fenugreek, which fenugreek almost could have made my main list. There, there's more research showing uh, benefits for fenugreek. Milk thistle and very specifically the active compound that drives liver detox called silymarin, ginseng, and inositol. So all of those do have some uh, potential blood sugar regulating benefits as well. So I, I think that I wanted to go over that because in part there's this emphasis on nutrient density, especially with you know zinc and vitamin K2 and get getting D. D, vitamin D levels dialed in, chromium, magnesium, right? That's just focusing on on nutrient-dense foods. But there are some supplements that can be potentially really, really beneficial above and beyond all of the efforts in terms of, of diet and lifestyle. It's um, And all of those supplements also have anti-inflammatory properties. So uh, other than, right, something like ashwagandha or reishi mushroom, um, may not be the best choice for someone with autoimmune disease. So if it's type 1 diabetes, I mean, always with supplements with type 1 diabetes, you want to be very, very careful. Um, but there's like some cool additional benefits to a lot of these. Um, berberine uh, and curcumin, actually, that are both on this list, can help tighten up the tight junctions and the gut barrier and actually help restore gut barrier integrity, which is like super cool. So a lot of these have like multiple health benefits that might be worth taking, especially if you're 
you know, doing all of the other things and you're just trying to get that extra bit of mileage for regulating blood sugar levels, um, there's, there's some pretty compelling evidence behind each of them. The most important question that I have for you. Yes. You told me about the four sigmatic mushroom hot chocolate drink Mm -hmm. thing. And it's been sitting in my cart on Amazon until I could ask you about it. And now you just reminded me with the reishi mushroom. So is it the mushroom hot cocoa mix? Because there's one with cinnamon in it. Oh, there's one with cinnamon. I don't, I don't know. Hang on. I'm I have super jazzed hands, excited. I'm going to try it whether that's the one you like or not, but. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I have, I don't think this one, it might have a. Titch of cinnamon, but it's not a ton. I actually literally have a cup on the How go. How much right cinnamon? Now. Say that one more a, time. A titch. Titch. A titch of cinnamon. Mm-hmm. I like Is it when this... you're Canadian shows. Uh, I, I, I think you I'm might have studying for my citizenship exam now. <laughs> you have to, you have to stop saying a titch. Um, Obviously. So, I think you might have chaga and mocha. But I'm going to try reishi and cinnamon. Chaga and mo- mocha has higher reviews. So the, this is the one not that in I have. Anyway sponsored, by yeah, the way. <laughs> this is, the one that I drink has both chaga and reishi in it. Yeah. So I think that's the, uh, that's the and, other flavor. And it also has some like turmeric and maca. Okay. Well, I'm going to try the reishi and cinnamon hot cocoa mix version. And I'm excited about it, which probably means I'll be let down, but that's okay these things and, in life are worth giving a shot and obviously reference back to our medicinal mushroom podcast which was not that long ago yes absolutely well i think we have conquered as much as we can <laughs> in one show this is sure. obviously a very very in-depth like just you know pe- like you've peeled back just not even a little tiny bit of of this topic here. This is all the, all the things, diabetes, right. All the things. Um, and a lot of these topics we've actually covered a little more in depth on other shows like vitamin D K2, like all these kinds of things. And so if you wanted to find out more about some of the things that Sarah's mentioned, like sleep episodes, (laughs) just, I think there's like a whole week of sleep. Um, you can just, you know, Google the paleo view and whatever that word is, and you'll find all the shows that we've done on that before because we do them by topic. And so enjoy. we can we can also put some effort into referencing back to relevant shows in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, but chances are pretty good. We'll miss one. There's so many. I feel like we're going to miss, you know, 300. <laughs> There's so Just many shows. Just listen to most of our previous episodes. Don't do that. Fine. Don't do yourself. <laughs> All right, listeners, you've survived another episode and we appreciate you being with us so much. If you enjoyed listening to the show today, we would love for you to share it with your friends, your family, anyone that you know in your life that could potentially benefit from the topic that we've discussed. And of course, when you share on social media and leave reviews, it helps other people find our show. And we're so very, very grateful. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. 
You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal.